0: Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball. Today's guest, Ramona Koval, has been described as the master of the interview. She presents ABC Radio's The Book Show, a personal favorite of mine, and has just had a compendium of some of her most interesting interviews published. That's titled Speaking Volumes, Conversation with Remarkable Writers. Of course, today's conversation is with a remarkable writer and interviewer. Ramona, welcome. Well, thank you
1: very much, Magdalena.
0: Now, I know this isn't your first book of interviews, but as I was reading through it, the immediate question that came to my mind was how you chose which interviews to include from what must be a massive portfolio of interviews. I guess
1: I chose the interviews that I thought were the wisest, uh, probably the wisest about life, the wisest about writing, the wisest about reading. Um, that also gave us some sort of insight into how different writers go about capturing the world in their books, um, how they think about language uh, how they think about relationships and, and family, and basically, I mean, you know, um, there's, we we often go to books because, or novels especially too, because we are looking for something. And I just read actually this morning, John Banville did a review of a book about Nabokov, and and apparently Nabokov um, said that that writers do three things. The great writers do three things: they, they are storytellers, they are teachers, and they are enchanters. And I guess I I looked for the writers who would tell the story, would teach us something about the life we're we're in now, and would enchant us for some moments, you know, as we read, take us away from our lives.
0: Mm. And, and so I,
1: <laughs> I didn't put a grid up of those things though. Yeah, I not <laughs> points or anything. I just read, remembered, I suppose, them. The feeling I had of interviewing them, and sometimes the best feelings are when you don't, you forget it's an interview and you just think I'm having a conversation. There's nobody else here except us, and what a what a pleasure and what a privilege it is. And I suppose I went through and thought, yeah, well that would fit into that category, and that wouldn't, and or this one would be interesting because it shows, you know, the difficulties of some writers, you know, communicating with others, and some of them can be quite scratchy and You know, sometimes... You know, as I said in, in the introduction, uh, I, I think I even uh, I used it as a um, an epigraph. Um, you know, Roger Kipling interviewing Mark Twain in 1889 was just sort of adored the fact that he was actually there. He said, "I was shaking his hand, I was smoking his cigar, I was hearing him talk. This man I'd learned to love and admire 14,000 miles away," and and says, "Blessed is the man who finds no disillusion when he's brought face to face with a revered writer." But Sometime later, even only about like three or four years later, he refuses to be interviewed because he's now Rudyard Kipling, the writer, and says, why do I refuse to be interviewed? Because it is immoral. It is a crime, just as much of a crime as an offense against my person, as an assault, (laughs) etc. So, you know, it's a very strained space, the writer and the interviewer and and the transaction between them. So I suppose I just chose the most um, interesting
0: transactions I could find. Mm. And there's an extraordinary intimacy that happens, you know, much quicker than it would in life when you're you're able to sit down and chat on quite a deep level. And some of those conversations um, that you had were pretty deep. Well, it, it
1: is. Um I mean, some people think it's an impertinence. I suppose people, people like J.M. Coetzee, the South African-born writer now the Australian Nobel Prize winner, who never really never gives interviews and, and finds it odd that you know you you would have a kind of conversation with someone, which you know which is a little bit intimate for someone you you don't know. And in a way, he's right. And for some people, that intimacy, that immediate intimacy, is is offensive. But for others, I think, that idea that somebody has read your work very carefully. I mean, you know, if you write to be read, some people say they don't write to be read, but most people would say they love to be read. And you have a reader there in front of you who's read everything and then wants to share that mind space with you that you've created. I mean, I would find that would be delightful um, and many people do, and those are the ones that make the best interviewees, I think.
0: Mm. And, and you know, there's there's a kind of additional thing that you produce out of the interview, a sort of a triumvirate, if you like, that arises from the interview about this um, new space between the book, the author, and the interviewer.
1: Yes, and, and that's the, the space you invite the people who are listening to you. Um, in my case, as a broadcaster, in your case too um uh, listening into the conversation um and it it 's a very valuable shared space um I think that in the olden days, you know when we all watched watch the same read the same book sometimes I think in a way, when the waste train came out it, it, m- most literate people would have read it and then had a conversation about it but these days when we're all reading disparate things we're watching disparate things on television on on our computers um, where we just there's no shared conversation um, unless it's these moments where we we read a writer we share a conversation with them we listen to them I just think it's very important really for for a a culture like ours, that there is some shared conversation. And I think these kinds of conversations that we have with people who are worth talking to in that deep way because they've thought about something, it's really worthwhile. And I I think that third space um, is a very democratically important space. Mm.
0: And, um, you know, you talked about choosing particularly wise sort of um, writers or people who you know, just were at that level, I think, in their careers too. But there's a, a poignancy as well, I found, when I was reading it, that you know a number of the authors that you covered have since died. Uh, you almost feel as if this were the sort of last opportunity to winkle out just a little bit more voice before it's stilled.
1: Well, I think you're right, and that's really what touched me about them too. Um, I think mean, people like Joseph Heller uh, who I interviewed in his apartment in New York, um, just after he'd written his last book, which was a memoir. Um, he died, I think, the next year. Um, uh, Judith Wright, who was very old when I talked to her in Canberra, in in her flat, and she was, she was almost blind, and she was, uh, I think, she was completely deaf. And we we spent hours together in that flat, and we had a great big whiteboard, and I would write out the questions in huge letters. She would take a long time reading them, and then she would speak, although she, it was hard to, you know she was hard to hear her precisely because she was deaf, um, and then I would then uh, write another question out, so it was very laborious, but actually, I thought, you know she was an old lady then, and I thought she's really making an effort here. And you know, for hours to stay with this interviewer, and i never met her before either, but she was making an effort, and I thought, now I think back, that she was probably knowing that that would have been the last interview that she would have been able to do, and she wanted to get a few things down. Uh, and that's a great privilege. Harold mm, Especially- Pinter as well, for example. Um, uh, the first time I interviewed him in, in Edinburgh, he just had a... Um, uh, cancer of the throat, and that was a very, I mean, a very daunting interview because I, I did want to talk to him about cancer. He'd written some poems about cancer that I'd read, and I had wanted to raise it sometime in, in the interview. And he said backstage to me, Well, will you be talking about cancer? And I said, Well, I would like to, to talk about it with you. And he said, Well, would you mind getting it out of the way first? <laughs> I said, Okay. And, I, and he said, Would you like to read this poem? about cancer that I'd written? And I said, yes. He said, oh, I can't read it because I've got, you know, I don't want to ru- ruin my voice, but will you read it? And I said, well, you better, I better practice because this is Harold Pinter, <laughs> the great, you know, writer and director. And so I read the poem and he, he corrected, I said, is that okay? And he said, well, a, a little bit of a space between that word and that word. And I thought, yes, that's the famous Pinter silence." <laughs> and so I went on and I introduced him and uh, we, we read the poem. We immediately talked about cancer, and then it turned out a few years, a couple of years later, he was coming back to Edinburgh, and they asked me to interview him again. And he, this time, he was, he could hardly walk. He was in a wheelchair, except just in, in the wings of the theatre, he he stood up, and I helped him onto the stage. He actually walked onto the stage in a very theatrical manner, and stood against the lectern, and then did this 15-minute reading from the birthday party, um, he, one of his first plays. And this is just amazing a reading of this section with all the voices, and then I helped him sit down, and then we had we had the last conversation we had, and then he died shortly after. Except he went on to he, he had been practicing Crapp's Last Tape, which was uh, the the, um, the the play um, and the, the Beckett play, and he went on to do a, a series of Crap's Last Tape, which is a one man of a man sitting there um, on stage, I don't know if you know it. He did it, you know, in London, um, up between then and dying. So, goodness me, I mean, the, you know, the 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 ah, oh, what what would you describe it as? The will to live and the, the, ener-
0: the energy, the energy yeah, that amazing. came that came amazing. through quite strongly in his interview too. I, I thought it was quite a political feisty interview, wasn't it? I really yeah. felt, felt the man was present as I was reading it.
1: Yes, well, that's right. And he was, you know, there were some things more important than having to die. I, mean, I had the feeling that he was, um, he was just going to eat every last drop out of life. So that sort of thing you know that's the sort of wisdom i'm i'm talking about
0: yes and judith's right because she'd stopped writing poetry just before you interviewed her hadn't she she'd kind of given it off well
1: she'd actually given it off long before i'd interviewed her she she'd given it away when she lost the love of her life and she she talked about you know sometimes there's nothing to write a poem about after after a certain point um and uh, that she would write other things but not poetry anymore um which was very moving um but then you know there's the other wisdom about deciding what's important to you and not not keeping on going with something that wasn't that you'd lost the source for you know sometimes in life you have to say i'm not going to do that anymore because now i'm going to do this or i don't want to do it badly uh, And and those are some decisions that some writers make too. Or, you know, I think, um, I mean, Margaret Drabble, I think she's saying she's not going to write fiction anymore. Um, She's written a a non-fiction memoir of, of of her life and also it's about jigsaw puzzles, but it's also about wisdom, about putting together the puzzle of the life and making your life fit together in some way. Or making the puzzle fit, which is much easier than making your life fit together.
0: Or perhaps choosing the appropriate voice, whether you know it's an invective or whether it's it's you know it's a, a contemplative voice, or whether it's something much stronger and and out there. Yeah, and sometimes some of these writers, I think, find that they they you know they they
1: can't use the kinds of voices that they used to use. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are great, very wise things to learn, I think, along the way.
0: Yes I, as a writer, I often found myself taking notes in relation to my own work while reading through some of these interviews. Uh, I felt even just thinking about the craft of writing um you know well, you, what did you your... tell me what you noted <laughs> well I, I noted for example, some of the um narrative processes in there, but also uh, this notion that you talk about with Malcolm Bradbury about um the notion that readers like and want to know about their writers
1: yes um. Yeah, they do. They do. Um, some people think that that the work should stand alone and you know, should never t- talk to writers, and, and you should. You know, I suppose it l- loses some of the enchantment if you you talk to the human being behind it. But I've never found that to be the case. Um, uh, people do want to read. They want. They want to see. They want to hear. They want to further engage with people that they admire. And that's why people come to writers' festivals. Um, they want to see people that they've, uh, they've read for years. They want to, sometimes they want to ask a particular question. And they want to be in the presence of the passion, I suppose, um, which, which is another element of, of what a writer can offer.
0: Yes, although um, during your interview with Saul Bellow, one of the things he said was, between me and the public, there is my art, but between me and the radio audience, there is no There's art. No art. Right. <laughs> and, and, and you responded immediately with, that's debatable. That's
1: right, because I think there is an art. I mean, that's okay. He doesn't have to know everything about everything. He, he's not going to be right about everything.
0: suppose <laughs> the art of the radio is very much the heart of, of this kind of art, isn't it? Well, I think so. I think um, the art of
1: the sound of the voice, you know, the art of waiting for the answer, listening to the silences, listening to the breaths, you know, allowing an idea to develop. I think there's an art in that. Um, it's It's an art of human communication allowing people to come forth. It's a very different process than, say, the um, Paris Review interviews, where uh, you know there's a great tradition of Paris Review interviews and we're all, we're all interested in reading them. But um, that, that's about an interview going along and spending days and days and weeks and going back again and back again to the, to the writer and uh, coming to an agreed to, uh, version uh, of what the writer is saying, sending the writer... The transcript, the writer corrects it. The writer changes things, and in a sense, um, I think Nab- Nabokov used to do this too. Only would only respond to written questions, and then would write the answers out. And his idea was that it, it wasn't spontaneous, but it was, um, you know, it, it was what he wanted to say. That, you know the writer has control of course, of that in a way that in a conversation like we 're having now um, it, it is spontaneous and and uh, well the person who's respo- you're responsible for the questions i 'm responsible for the answers but, but you know we're all on our own in this case i mean i 'm not going to uh, go back on what i've said unless i Say to you, well, I'd like to put that a bit differently, or something like that. But you know, you see the raw element in a conversation. Uh, in, in a sense, it's not tidied up and uh, it's not uh, it's not uh, art- artificial. It it might be uh, not quite as as beautiful as if we'd re- really laboured over the answers and tr- corrected every. Uh, hesitation and, and change particular words because I 've used the wrong words or I 've used not the best word for what i'm trying to expect, uh, what i 'm trying to express, but it 's a different thing um, that we 've got, and I find it more exciting because it is two people on their metal, you know and, and, and really connecting and, and trying to converse
0: yes, and, and there is of course that intimacy as well, which you lose, I think, in the crafting process to a certain extent
1: yeah absolutely, you do, yes, um, so it's I think there is a, and I think Bellow was wrong about that, um, but you know he's an old school, he's old school, and he was he was pretty old at the time, and he's probably you know been sick of being interviewed by people. Yes.
0: <laughs> now, of course, the one main difference between interviewing and being interviewed is the subject matter. So, when you're interviewing, you're not the subject, at least not really. Um, but do you ever feel like other writers are taking over your life? <laughs> that you know, you need yes. some time and attention <laughs> for your own work. Well, yes, of course, of course
1: I do. Um, and sometimes I think, um, well, I feel like I'm on a treadmill because this is, you know, I do a daily show, and so every day um, there is other people's work to consider. And um, and you know at the moment I've got here next to me um, a history of cake and a history of milk um, um, the, a, a, a book about the Atlantic Ocean um, and another one here about a uh, requiem for a species by Clive Hamilton about climate change and I have to read those all very soon. And when, when would I have the time to sit down and quietly craft my own work? But then again, I think, well, you know, this is all preparation. I'm in preparation for the big work. <laughs> and When I'm too old to do this, um, that'll be the time when I know so many things. Hopefully, I'll be able to say them <laughs> and write them. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, look, I'm just very, very excited that I get to, I suppose it's like some kind of open university, System that I think I'm doing. I'm giving myself this most remarkable education. I'm reading who I want to read. I'm talking to who I want to talk to, and I'm sharing the reading with people who are interested in things too. And I'm, well, yeah, I don't find it um, a waste of time at all. I mean, I find it, you know, a great, a great education. And I'm sure um, when when I get back to my own work, I'll, um, I'll have something really good to say.
0: Yes, yeah, so I imagine, you know, after all this build up the, the Open University itself actually, um, interestingly, runs courses that involve solely listening to interviews with great authors.
1: I didn't know that.
0: They do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in, in any case, um, do you find that there are themes and questions that you find yourself returning to again and again? Something that, you know, you're, just, you're getting one perspective that's interesting every time you ask it. Oh, I don't really have, I don't,
1: I'm not aware that uh, I have a, a kind of a question that I ask everybody. Sometimes I find myself wondering with very, very old people about whether they feel that they've, they're wise now. That they know, you know, what 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 have they learned that they'd like to tell us all? In a way, it's partly because, um, I, you know, I grew up in a family. Uh, my parents were Holocaust survivors. They were the only survivors of their own family, so we never had, um, any brother, any cousins. We never had aunts and uncles. We certainly didn't have any grandparents. So we were like a little, um, you know, on on a little raft in the on the big sea, just the four of us. And so I never knew any old people. I never uh, had anybody in my life who was old, so uh, I'm, I'm, I find myself seeking out old people because I find them interesting and fascinating because I've never known any. And as I'm getting older, um, I, I you know I'm, I'm a grandmother of three granddaughters um, and. I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to be with them because I never had a grandmother. But I think I'm doing a pretty good job of, of, of engaging and having fun with them. So I think I'm seeking I'm out this thing about wisdom and, and for old people, I, I think for that reason, if there's a personal reason, if there's a personal driver, it would be that. And that's probably the most common kind of question I might ask, um, but not, sort of, not to start off with. Um, it, it's more something that might come towards the end of a conversation.
0: Well, certainly it seems, at least from the interview selected in this book, um, that that you have a little bit of a lean, as I do, towards literary fiction. Yeah. And um, one thing that I do see returning again and again is, um, is something Norman Mailer talks about quite openly, which is the relationship between fiction and truth. Yes, yes, that's right. Norman Mailer,
1: was um, an interesting Character. He was pretty remarkable when I met him. Of course, he's he's dead too now. Um, he, uh, you know, that 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 idea, that sort of bullish man. He was like a fighter and a fist fighter or a boxer and a, you know, a speaker of the truth and a, a baller and a, a very handsome and very um, he was a bit of a ladies' man. And when I met him, he was on two sticks. Um, because he could hardly walk, he had um, problems with his hips, and he was almost in a wheelchair. And when he sat down there on a stage, he just came into his own, and he was absolutely fantastic, and he was marvelous. But he, um, yeah, I mean, he he was talking about, um, you know, getting getting to the nub of things, getting to the truth of things, and I think that's why he um, he he wrote his nonfiction in the way he did. He he was one of the early ones to put himself in it. And explain to to readers what he was doing and and who he was um, in a sense, so that we could hear the voice of the person who's reporting to us. Um, so we're aware that we're we're filtering it through somebody's vision. Um, that we you know it's not that um, uh, byline absent way of reporting that had been a tradition in newspapers at least. Um, yeah, I mean. Uh, and and you were you were talking about what he was saying about fiction and truth,
0: mm. and also about the you know i guess the the deeper truth that fiction tells about the notion of truth versus fact
1: yeah um these truths are almost um they're almost but we we can feel them in our bodies when we read them i don't know whether you know what i mean but um no, I do. sometimes when we when we read something that we feel is um It goes to somewhere. It's not even that we have experienced the same thing or we've had the same thought because that often can happen and we can identify with something that's happening and that's moving too. But sometimes, and I can't even think of an example, but sometimes when you read something, it just gets you and you say yes. You know, something chimes in you, whether it's the language that's used or the this is the, the enchantment, I suppose, that Nabokov was talking
0: about—to
1: mm. give ourselves up to it—and uh, and that's why I like literary fiction, because I feel probably that that's it's there that I'm going to get the chiming. You know, I mean, more popular fiction might entertain, and you can read interesting things in crime genres, and um, in, in maybe you know, if you want to read some a, a sort of kooky book about a woman in your own position and the relationship she has with family and you might go, oh yeah, that happened to me and be entertained. But I think the kind of fiction where it's worked and worked and worked and worked, um, that's where you're going to get that chiming, you know, on the Mm -hmm. physical level almost um, that I'm looking for.
0: And it's also, it's almost, a, you talk about feeling it in the body, and I know exactly what you mean. It's a, sort of that Christavian physical response. But it's, it's almost this transition as well that Ian McEwen talks about from the, the private to the public space and then back again to private. You know, there's, a, there's almost a dialogue going between this private and public, isn't there?
1: There, are, there is. And that's sort of why I, I, do, um, I do like it when we can, we can engage writers like this in public, um, because you know, of, of our relationships with them, with their minds, and it's a very intimate thing to write a novel. It's a very intimate thing to open yourself up to the thoughts that are in your head, and the characters that you create, and the the emotions that you are playing with. And you know, it's very raw. It's um, I mean, so it's almost you've you've almost. Got that intimacy anyway with, with a reader and a writer. I think that's what probably writers forget how open they are, how, how open they are, are to to people stepping into their minds. And uh, but in that sharing space, that uh, that com- public conversation, um, I, I would think that it's it's a confirmation of their courage, the courage that they've had in. Being able to explain and express and explore mm. with us.
0: Yes. Now you asked me earlier what I'd written down for myself, and one of the things I wrote down was this: um, was from Joyce Carol Oates, the unconscious ticker tape narrative, which is of course that that whole Joycean thing that you know the idea of the the inner um, stream of consciousness, if you like that's right
1: and she thought she was just always um, no matter what she was doing she had this little this little ital- the italics or um, I suppose the the subtitles so you sometimes see um, going through her head evaluating yes. but you know at, doing an interview like this is well, I, I find as an interviewer um, you, there is the question there is the listening for the answer but there's also thinking about the next question thinking about the answer in relation to something else that was said uh, um, it's a much more active thing that you're doing at this moment than I'm doing, because you're thinking about the time, and you're thinking about what you want to ask at towards the end, and you're thinking about whether I finish my question, my my answer or not, and whether you could slip in a question here and there, and and that is, um, you know, it's much more complex than than it just looks like two people are talking. I think that's sort of what she was saying too, that she does.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, now look, this is obviously a work in progress for you, you're continuing to produce um, new interviews. Do you, do you think there will be other versions, do you intend to kind of continually publish some of the best? Well I think it would be
1: a good idea, if people want to read them I'm happy to publish them <laughs> and it will take me a few more years to to collect uh, some, some other ones but look I'm not going anywhere so this is what I'm going to be doing so hopefully there will be another volume and um, because people are constantly writing wonderful things and young people are writing great things and they will develop and the writers of tomorrow who are wise are developing now and, uh, you know, there's no shortage of good ideas and, and, and great new voices. So hopefully I'll be able to do uh, another version um, when we've all uh, had, had a, few, uh, a few more rounds of the merry-go-round. Does it surprise you how much good stuff keeps coming out? Look, it does. It, it, you know, it surprises me how how much good stuff keeps coming out. How hard it is to find it amongst the dross. <laughs> There's too much really bad stuff being published. I don't understand why, but obviously if someone's buying it, um, they continue to publish it. Uh, but, you know, um, I don't think we're getting to get to the point where everybody's going to be reading the same kinds of things, and why should it? I mean, some people just aren't interested in these kinds of questions. But I think there is always going to be a core of of thoughtful and um, devoted literary writers and devoted readers of their work.
0: Yeah, so what about um, your own projects or other projects? Is there something in the works at the back waiting to come along? Um, of my own writing yes oh yeah look I've been working for a long long time on
1: um, a kind of memoir um, it's uh, it's a family story and um, so I, you know I, I go back to it every so often and I fiddle with it <laughs> and eventually someone might be interested in publishing it
0: yes wonderful look that, that's I'm afraid that's all we have time for but um, thank you so much Romana. uh,
1: It's been a great pleasure speaking with you, Magdalena. It's been a real pleasure.
0: A pleasure for me, too. Um, Please join us next time for our interview with Jasper Jones, quite a a young author. I think he's um, been nominated for a Clio Bachelor of the Year as well. So um, he's young and funky, uh, and that's Craig Sylvie. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye.